It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast series. We're happy to have you. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Happy to have you here on episode 179. We have a very special guest, Alan Aragon. We're going to talk about nutrition, body composition, performance, and much, much more. Really excited about this one. And you know what, guys? Normally, I, I lead in with a bunch of announcements. We just we just don't have any this week. I mean, you guys already know about the app. I could tell you that we have the free Strongman template in there. It's updated, uploaded, ready for you to use for free. We have an updated version of the Strongman template itself from Alan Thrall, Mr. Untamed. Uh, Dr. Untamed? Do we give him an honorary doctorate? I don't know. You guys be the judge. Uh, but in honor of the world's strongest man, yeah, we, we updated that template. It's in the app as well. And you can download the app for free and try the free strongman template if you're strongman curious. So that's there. And then uh, you guys already know the deal. We're still trying to suss out um, some audience demographics to get a few sponsors so we can focus on the content here. That link is in the description below. Um, otherwise, hey, you know what? Let's keep this short and sweet. Let's get into this week's podcast with Alan Aragon. All right, guys, we have a very special guest today. Alan Aragon is finally on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I'm super excited about this episode. If you don't know who Alan Aragon is, he is the original. He is the OG. When people talk about OGs in the nutrition space, in the strength conditioning field, Alan Aragon's name certainly rises to the top of that list. And if you don't know who he is, I'm going to give Alan a chance to introduce himself. So Alan, give people your 60 second elevator pitch about who you are and uh, where you've been. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Jordan, for inviting me on. I mean, it's just been a long time coming and I'm super pumped to be on here. So thank you. And who I am in a nutshell is one of the forefathers, harbingers, pioneers of the evidence-based movement in nutrition uh, with, with uh, I guess, a specialization in, in the fitness realm um, and going even further, maybe a particular specialization in uh, improving body composition. And of course, in with that is is. Uh, improving athletic performance, but mainly improving body composition. And that's what uh, most of the research my colleagues and I have been involved with, with a, a little bit of improvement in strength peppered in there, because whenever you're looking at muscle hypertrophy, there's always kind of a, an in, inextricable strength element in there as well. So um, yeah, in a nutshell, just one of the guys who brought the, I guess the evidence-based approach um, to the fitness community. And this probably started a couple-ish decades ago and got really sort of strong and picked up momentum maybe about a decade ago. And I've gotten that going ever since. And then the future generations have sort of carried on that torch uh, and are keeping things lit, so to speak, as, 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 the, as the young folks would say these days. <laughs> as, as the youth say, yeah. Um, a question, you know, just as like an origin story, like how did you get into, into this uh, as far as like, you know, did you, did you study sports nutrition? Did you think about going the RD route? Like what, how did you get into this? Because you've done quite a bit of, you know, formal research, you're well-published and, and everything else like that. But I'm very curious how you kind of, you, you spawned a whole nother, genre, you know, like online, widely disseminated evidence-based information. And that pre previously didn't really exist. Yeah. We had the PubMed compendium and, and stuff like that, but 
you kind of made your own niche. So how, how did you get into this from like school and then all the way through? Just pretty, pretty, just basic and primal um, need to want to look better. <laughs> <laughs> that, just yeah. basic, basic primal need to you kind of want to look like like the magazine cover folks. Um, everyone from from the pro bodybuilders to to the guys on on Men's Health uh, covers, you know, um, half natty lighting and all of that and. <laughs> Um, <laughs> sure. yeah, as one does. Yes. <laughs> and so it, it's just sort of this, this innate desire to, to want to achieve that and want to become, um, superhuman or like kind of like a superhero or above average and, and looks and function maybe, and, and attain all the, uh, the, the, the spoils of, of that battle. So that's really kind of how, how it began just, uh, and, and so I, I, read the bodybuilding magazines avidly and saw how interested that the, the competitors were, and certainly the journalists within there, how interested they were in, well, not just selling the weeder products and things like that, but uh, in the nutritional aspect of this whole thing. And so that, that interested me quite a bit, seeing that there was not only a nutritional aspect, but um, in, in, in certain magazines, they were trying to began to veer into the realm of, oh, okay, well, there's a scientific aspect to this too, that we can apply to the nutrition side and we can look at carbohydrate, protein and fat and, and various uh, nutrients and supplements and stuff. And I'm like, oh, this, this stuff is really cool. And and so just beginning to get into the groove of implementing the stuff and, and training and transforming my own body. And then in, in the 1980s, like the late-ish 80s, personal training came to be as a, a potential job option. <laughs> so I'm like, whoa, so I can actually train people and help them learn this fitness stuff and how to gain muscle and lose fat and get stronger and get more fit. Oh, this is a, this is a cool avenue. Um, and so, uh, you know, just kind of took it from there, kicked around the idea. Um, I was actually an art major in college for a year and a half. And then I switched oh, really? over. Yeah. Wow. Uh, upon the advice of, of a guidance counselor who said, what on earth are you doing in an art major when you're interested in fitness? I'm like, I don't know. You know, my parents chose my major for me because uh, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. You need to, you need to choose either exercise science or nutrition. And I'm like, okay, here's the game plan, which was actually concocted for me by my girlfriend at the time. She's all, why don't you get a nutrition degree and, and get a personal training certification? That's genius. That's great. Genius. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so I just took it from there, man. And and then when I got on the uh, the message boards as or the forums, as we used to call them in the, in the early 2000s, I saw that there was really kind of a lack of folks debating or discussing topics on the basis of, of what we know in, in, in the scientific realm. You know, a lot of it was just, oh, this is what worked for me. You know, I did this and I got my, I've got 16 inch arms as a result of this. And so therefore I, I know what I'm talking about. And it's like, well, there's gotta be a little bit more than this here. And so as I was going through, um, I, I finished my undergrad in, in nutrition. And then I went on to do my master's degree in nutrition. Uh, I decided to do that instead of uh, pursuing the RD because I wasn't really, 
I wasn't really too excited about about the uh, the food science and food service and food administration and cooking type of world. I, I more wanted to go into the in quotes brotacular side <laughs> of things. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to get this this master's degree in nutrition because I I love the idea of digging through the books and, and researching and, and writing. And I just found out like by, by, by this time in my career, and this was in, in like two late nineties, early two thousands, I had already done a bunch of, um, personal training. So I had already done personal training for about 10 years and it's almost like, dude, anybody who does personal training for more than 10 years is, is, um, they have a special affinity for it. You know what I mean? That that's like, but, but you know, with me after 10 years of personal training, I kind of wanted to go into just sort of the educational part and teaching people how to do it. You know what I mean? Um, it's sort of an odd thing that happens. I think like maybe every 10 years you have this kind of career shift and career evolution where, okay, I, I've done well at that and I, and I want to teach people how to do it type of thing. So, at this point in, in the game, I wanted to uh, teach more and write more, and and really, man, that that's how that's how things started. So in the early two thousands, I ended up sitting on my butt more, doing more nutritional counseling, um, and then in in the two thousand tens is when I started my research career. So that was the second like decade went by, and I'm like, okay, instead of the 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 teaching and counseling part, I think. Um, well, I, I'm getting this opportunity to get into research and my friend, Brad Schoenfeld, he basically pulled me into the, the, the space. Uh, he, he was, um, this, okay. This is basically what happened. I, <laughs> I messaged him and said, Hey Brad, I write this monthly, uh, technical journal, if you will. And I just sit there and I, and I pick apart and I nitpick studies and papers. And, and is it okay if you send me your paper on, on hypertrophy and, uh, is it okay if I pick it apart? And he said, oh, yeah, sure. Sure. Whatever, you know, uh, it's, what did he say? He said, um, it, yeah, yeah. The, the crit, critical appraisal keeps the field honest. So here you go. So he sends me his, uh, his, his famous paper on, on hypertrophy, right? Um, this 2010 ish paper. And I picked, sure enough, I picked it apart and, um, I even found like a misreferenced, uh, citation. Oh, no. <laughs> he's like, he's like, oh shit, this is good stuff, Alan. So ever since then, um, he's been regularly pulling me onto research projects and, uh, um, that's kind of how my, my research career started from there. And I've been able to do a bunch of, um, notable publications, probably my, my, most proud one is is the ISSN position stand on diets and body composition, and this was an interesting process because I was invited to to write it by uh, Joey Antonio, uh, one of the co founders of the ISSN. Does, does and, he go by? Does he go, sorry to interrupt? Does he go yeah. by Joey? Ah, uh, no, Jose, Doctor yeah, okay. Jose Antonio. Okay. Yes. So, I- <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a terrible interaction with him and he, there's no way he remembers this, Uh-oh. but like I almost made it even worse in my own head. This was 2009 or 10 at the 
uh, strength conditioning coaches associate SCCA conference in Orlando. Mm. I, all I remember is he gave this like talk and I went up to him and I was like, Jose, 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 I got a, I got a question afterwards. You know, mm-hmm. just, <laughs> I was like, how bad is drinking a gallon of milk a day? Like the dumbest question I could have possibly asked, <laughs> right? And I'm like, oh my god, I like I hope that you know he never realizes who I am now. You know, 13, 12 years later. But if I called him by the wrong name, I was going to even make it worse. On top of anyway. So, I'm glad that, <laughs> so, so do you remember what he answered? He was like, "It's not terrible. Dairy's generally, you know, pretty pretty good. I don't know that I'd want all of my calories to come from there, uh, but and you." probably spent a lot of time in the bathroom, but you know, it's probably okay if you're trying to gain a bunch of weight, you know, uh, good, <laughs> he was kind of like, kinda like uh, what, who's this guy? Why is he asking me such a dumb oh, question? That's at this so point? great. That's so great. It's funny <laughs> because I totally know why you would ask that question. Cause it was such a thing for a while, man. The yeah. gallon of milk a day thing was, I mean, that was a viral situation amongst the, the, the bro subculture. Yeah, and, you just you drink a gallon of milk a day, you do your squats, and you get huge. That's that's how it works. Duh. Right, right, and and like, hence like like starting strength was was lovingly called sharting strength for a while, and and uh, it was like it was a thing, and so that no, that is a great story, man. That's hilarious, and and so yeah, Joey, uh, he he said, Alan, would you write the ISSN's pos- position stand on body composition? And I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> like you think about it, you go, oh boy, this is another thing added to the plate. But oh well, yeah, it's, it's a great opportunity. So the way that they um, set that up was was I wrote the paper, and 16 other re- top researchers in the field basically, you know, poked holes in it and and uh, picked it apart and threw stones at it, and that's how the process went. It wasn't like okay. Alan, you do this section and, uh, you know, um, so-and-so is going to do the other section and this and that. I just wrote the thing and it's got peer reviewed to death by 16 researchers. And so, but that was a, a cool way to do it in retrospect, because it still allowed me to, um, truly like do most of the, the, of the heavy lifting for the paper and have a pretty high degree of autonomy over, um, over how it, how it was put together. So it was great, man. Um, so I, I don't even know whether that was, that was a good summary of who I am and where I came from and what, but I guess yeah. that'll have to do. No, that'll work. Yeah. And so if people are like, who's Jose Antonio, it's like, okay, let's go back. You need to know that the international sports society of nutrition exists and that like the founder and now continuing, you know, head of this organization is Jose Antonio. And for him to ask somebody, a single person, mind you, to write this like position stand on body composition and like nutritional strategies to adjust, that's huge. Especially, again, this was probably after the internet coaching, internet forum kind of like guru thing started in the fitness scene. Uh, And as people were transitioning more towards, or at least there was a a part of that group uh, or or, or field that was transitioning more towards evidence-based you know, science-based information to have that opportunity. That's huge. I mean, now it seems like, yeah, of course that would happen. But back then that we, we just like YouTube was just starting. Like we, you know, yeah. Were, uh, yeah. So just to, if you, if you have, if you haven't been in the game for more than, you know, 10 years, 15 years, you don't remember when there was no, nothing available online where mm-hmm. it was just, you know, you had deep squatter from Dave Tate, you had starting strength 
and then you had like the old old wider article you know articles and the magazines that's that's all you had and mm-hmm. so then when the forums or message boards came out we were like ooh cool and then yeah again it, in a nutshell Alan Aragon was one of the people that really shoved that whole thing forward into science and using um, uh, better information to make decisions. And so that's why he's on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Uh, <laughs> super exciting project also that you just completed. And I was wondering when we were talking on email, like, what is he doing over there? He's like not available, but he's a man of the internet. Doesn't make any sense. We're always available. <laughs> uh, you just finished a book. Uh, and it's coming out. I think uh, when this publishes, it's either going to come out this, you know, the week that this goes up, the week following. It looks like it's June seventh is June the date 7th, that it's yeah. going to be. Mm-hmm. So, what's the title of the book? What's in it? Uh, who'd you write it for? Give us, give us some deets on the book. Yeah, yeah, sure, man. The book is called Flexible Dieting, and uh, you know, I sigh a little bit at that title. <laughs> <laughs> sure, <laughs> because. Um, a lot of people are gonna gonna read that title, and a lot of people will be intrigued and and excited about it. But there's gonna be a faction of people who are under the impression that flexible dieting is counting your grams of carbohydrate, protein, and fat for the day and filling it in with whatever you whatever. It's just the so, macro diet, man. That's all it right. is. <laughs> it's like counting macros. And that is so not what it is. That is just, oh my goodness. I can't even begin to express how inaccurate that is. Because flexible dieting um, is is like one of the chapters in the book that I cover. (laughs) And then the other nine chapters are like a straight ahead, I want to, I want to call it a college textbook on nutrition. But number one, my wife always just, cringes and, and says, Alan, that sounds like the most unappetizing book ever. Don't tell people it's like a textbook on, on mm-hmm. nutrition. But, uh, you know, candidly speaking, man, it is like a nutrition certification manual in yeah. my voice, sort of conversationally delivered. And the flexible dieting aspect of the book applies to one of the initial chapters where, where I talk about what flexible dieting is, how, how it originated um, in the literature and the uh, actually <laughs> the concepts of flexible dieting originated in the mid 70s, but really it started kind of taking shape and being applied to the dieting world in the mid and late 90s in the literature where flexible dieting was, it's a cognitive style of dietary restraint. That, that's what it is. It's not counting macros. It's not if it fits your macros. Um, it is It is a non-dichotomous and non-all-or-nothing approach to diet in general. So really the thing that blows people's minds about, about the real definition of flexible dieting is if you're somebody who prefers a more rigid menu structure, <laughs> then go with that. If you're somebody who prefers more qualitative and loose structure or approach to your eating, then go with that because they're all under the umbrella that everything must be individualized. Everything is, in quotes, flexible. Even degrees of rigidity should be individualized to either the individual or even the the phase of dieting within the individual's program for the year. Uh, And I... 
give the example of, um, oh, the craziest athletes and people in the world, competitive bodybuilders. So <laughs> um, <laughs> when they're pre-contest, they have a strict script that they stick to down to the grams and down to the choices and all that. And um, I mean, at the highest levels, and that is very conducive to their objective. Uh, now this may change in the off season and that's fine. And, and so, you know, that's an example of um, the flexibility of dietary approach. And there are people in the general population who absolutely hate the idea of tracking macronutrient grams. Uh, and frankly, you know, man, most people do. Most people hate that idea. And that's perfectly fine because there are other approaches where they can achieve the same goals that counting macros does, but they can do it on a less granular and micromanaging level. So, uh, so yeah, that's flexible dieting is, is flexibility of the approach. Flexible dieting isn't counting macros. <laughs> I mean, yeah. counting macros is under the umbrella of flexible dieting if that's what works best for you. Yeah. I think when people hear flexible dieting, they think protein shakes and Pop-Tarts and that, that's it. We have my friend Matt Ogis to thank for that. Yeah. As long as, as long as you hit your numbers, you're good, but it could be <laughs> protein and, and Pop-Tarts. Now I'm really excited for this book. We, we've been working on a similar, similar project because, you know, people will ask like, what's the best nutrition book I can get? And it's like, I mean, what do you, what do you want to learn? I mean, there are nutritional textbooks that you can buy that would be part of a curriculum to get either a master's in dietetics or like a, you know, an RD sort of, uh, a credential, um, that will teach you, you know, the biochemistry that's going on that will teach you aspects about food administration, food preparation, public health, et cetera. But if that's not really what you're looking for, if you're looking for more like sports nutrition practices and evaluation and, uh, there's a whole nother section versus like behavioral change counseling. That's a whole nother. So uh, there's a lot of different ways you can go, but currently there's no, like, I want to learn about nutrition as it pertains to health and performance. And I want to learn the evidence behind different strategies, different approaches or whatever that text doesn't exist. And you're going to make a big dent in that and say, here's, here's something that you can use. And we're hoping to, we're hoping to do the same. And Yeah. I got together with a friend of mine named David Gal David Galvin, who um, he's a, just a talented guy. He's kind of a Renaissance man. He has a he's one of these guys who has so much brains and and he doesn't really know what to do with it type of thing. <laughs> right. So he got a, a master's degree in exercise science, and then he went ahead and got a, he like got a master's degree in nutrition, and he's a software developer. And so uh, he <laughs> he developed um, the uh, online calculator for the, the formulas that I, I developed in in the book. And so oh, cool. um, there is a, a very solid programming element in the book as far as putting diets together, estimating energy needs, estimating macronutrient needs. And um, I, I outline how to calculate that stuff all by hand, but um, I also worked with David on getting this this calculator done. So within the book is a link to the calculator that just removes all of the the manual number crunching. So I'm also proud about that aspect of the book. And yeah, and yeah, yeah, dude, I'm super excited about this book. Uh, I've always been someone to kind of shy away from marketing and pushing products and stuff because I, I find myself getting annoyed <laughs> sure. when, when that's all that people do. But um, this is kind of the time to, to, to let people know that yeah, I really and truly did put 
everything but the kitchen sink in, into this book. And I wanted it to be the go-to book for uh, sports nutrition as well as nutrition for improving body composition. So all, all of the questions are answered in terms of amount and timing and, and, and type and, and all, all of that stuff with, with the nutrients. And um, it, it's just tremendous. I, and, and so the, there's also a chapter that focuses on dietary adherence, which is kind of the missing factor in, in all of this stuff. And dietary adherence, as far as my perspective goes, it really does boil down to how well you can individualize the program. Because a cookie cutter universalized plan, like let's say keto, or yeah, or, or let's take it even a step further, carnivore. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, you just can't universalize a, a program and expect long term adherence in in most of the population. So, yeah. for in my view, it boils down to individualizing. So, so I spent a bunch of uh, time and effort and and page space on how to individualize programs. Yeah. I think you'd agree that probably that you're, there are certain dietary pillars or dietary pattern pillars. You'd want people to generally adhere to for both health and performance, you know, whether that's energy balance, uh, sort of dietary quality, uh, you know, certain, um, you know, fiber into, you know, the various things, protein levels and, and, and so on and so forth. But the way you get there, I mean, there are many paths that lead to Rome, and as far as keeping somebody on that path is going to be, as you said, a matter of individualization, but it doesn't really, you know, how, uh, like kind of where you want somebody to get is not necessarily that different. You know, people are like, well, I need a specific type of diet. Well, you need a specific type of dietary pattern that fits your, you know, resources that you have access to your, you know, preferred palate, all sorts of other sort of things. But like, as far as approximately how much protein you, you need and how much do the type of energy balance we're uh, trying to achieve it's probably it's probably pretty similar between individuals with similar goals and and stuff like that so um yeah i'm really excited for this book now we'll have something to recommend uh hopefully our text is another you know complimentary sort of thing i can only hope to achieve a similar level of uh uh, kind of dent that we're going to put in the space. But yeah, when people are asking, now we'll have an answer. Hey, what book should I get to like learn about nutrition in this space and like how to, how to, how to do it? Here we go. Because it, again, it just doesn't exist, which is why you had to write it. And, uh, two years oh, of your life. I, later. I appreciate you giving me the, the platform to, to get that out there, Jordan. Yeah. I'm going to be pumped. I'm going to be pumped when it comes out. Uh, and you know, perks of having a podcast now now i get a free copy of this book that's so <laughs> yeah buddy <laughs> yeah buddy <laughs> saving money um i want to get into some practical stuff uh for the people and this is this will probably obviously it's in your in your book but we can we can kind of wrap about this probably the most common question i get and i think this is due to our just selection bias and audience with people who are interested in performance and body composition whatever like how much protein do i need come on man that's the biggest thing. And I think there's been this messaging, especially in the strength conditioning industry and, and fitness industry in general, that we just need more protein. So just like point blank, how much protein do people actually need for health and performance? If you had to give somebody a quick and dirty on like, you know, how much protein do we actually need to be healthy and to perform at you know a reasonably high level? What, what would you say to that? It's sort of a two tiered answer, I, I'd say. So if you look at the general population, you can maybe uh, look at them in in as kind of two two sections. So you have the folks who are just happy with 
attaining general health and they don't necessarily have athletic goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and included with the athletic goals, they don't necessarily even have uh, <laughs> very robust body composition goals, especially in terms of muscle gain. Okay, mm-hmm. so you're talking about the regular ass person who wants to be regular. <laughs> yeah, which is and, fine, by the way. This and, is fine. And yes, absolutely. That and that's perfectly fine. So with that population, if they're running um as low as 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight uh in in protein intake, then they're fine. Um, one thing is pretty, pretty certain. The RDA sucks for most people in most situations. So we can kind of just put the RDA in the trash because it's, it's going to be insufficient for the majority of the general population anyway. Um, so 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram for, uh, the part of the general population that does not necessarily have athletic goals. Now the other, uh, tier, (laughs) I hate to say tears, but you know, sure. Kind of, we're kind of superior here. You know what I'm saying? Jordan, <laughs> we're superior. Right. Um, <laughs> De- definitely bigger. Definitely bigger. <laughs> so the other tier um, would be a, a range of 1.6 to, to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. And in, in uh, imperial terms, that would be 0.7 to 1.0 grams per pound of body weight. And, and that range, especially with 1.6 being the, the lower end, um, that really tends to optimize uh, athletic performance and body composition goals through a, through a number of, of, of pathways. And the 1.6er, you could even argue that that's probably most appropriate for e- even the the general population who doesn't necessarily have athletic goals because as they get older, then there are issues with getting in enough protein and getting in enough high quality protein to stave off the ravages of sarcopenia and, and, and dynopenia. So, so with those two tiers in mind, if we could just boil it down to, to one, then 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight maybe the the one ring that that rules them all in terms of a uh, uh, at least a starting point for programming sure. and now should people be using should they be using lean body mass fat free mass mm-hmm. or, or should they be using total yeah. body weight to figure this out yeah that's a, that's a great question because when people with obesity start using these numbers especially the you know the 1.6 to 2.2 range then they can end up over prescribing protein you know so um a safer way to look at it would would maybe be to base protein targets on goal body weight or in quotes ideal body weight. And if sure. your current body weight is your goal, then you use your current body weight. Otherwise, you use target body weight to uh, set protein targets. And target body weight is sort of a way to approximate lean body mass, which is what you're trying to feed anyway. Um, but without you know, that there's problems with assuming you can actually accurately measure a lean body mass. 100%. So, so yeah, yeah. I, I found it a little bit more practical to use target body weight when, when running these sort of estimations. Yeah. It's, it's tough because yeah, you get particularly larger individuals and they're like, well, I'm supposed to have 380 grams of protein a day, what you're mm-hmm. saying. And I'm like, yeah, it's probably, that's probably high. 
just because your total the total essential amino acid load, which is kind of the pr- a proxy of you know uh, how much protein you're getting in, is going to be it, it's far in excess of what you actually need. Now, when I say excess, I don't mean necessarily harmful. I'm just like, dude, that's a lot of protein. It's an mm-hmm. expensive dietary pattern, and like, I just don't know that you need that. If your palate prefers a higher level of protein, like, hey, man, off to the races. But I don't, I don't necessarily know, think that you need that much. And there's certainly, there doesn't appear to be any advantages to taking in that high of a of a load. You know, people will mm-hmm. say, well, what about my kidneys or my liver? Or, you know, insert organ system here, and it's like, well, as far as long term data on, you know high protein intake and and those sort of outcomes, it doesn't really pan out. And even in the state of of chronic kidney disease, because people always put this caveat like, well, if your kidneys are functioning fine, you're fine on a high protein diet. And it's like, well, even if they're not functioning fine, the data on taking in more protein doesn't necessarily correlate with a steep, you know, a more rapid decline in kidney function. It's kind of, Mm -hmm. that's a controversial area. So maybe in five or 10 years, as more and more data emerges, we'll have better uh, knowledge of how that that relates, but yeah, I, I'm in agreement that the, that sort of protein intake, I mean, that's literally the same thing we say, uh, which is interesting because the RDA is literally half of that. If you're talking about 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day, that's double the RDA. Mm-hmm. And so as you said that I, I agree that the RDA is probably not great. They're trying to say, well, you're, you're in a you're not in a negative nitrogen balance. As long as you're not in that and you're fine. Um, I don't know that that's <laughs> really appropriate though. So my question to you is, mm-hmm. um, if the RDA is at 0.8 grams per kilo per day of protein intake, and there's there's been a push in the medical community to raise that, mostly from folks who are involved in sarcopenia, dynopenia research, so just loss of muscle mass, loss of muscular function, muscular power in that for that particular definition, strength, um, to raise it especially for older folks as they tend to require a little bit higher dose of protein to, you know, maintain muscle mass and in general, their protein intake declines as they age. So we figure if we bump the target up, people are going to eat more protein. So that's been happening as of late, probably the last five years, most dramatically. Meanwhile, in the fitness industry, and I think this dates back to wider with his first, you know, protein supplement, people have been saying, eat more protein eat more protein, eat more protein. Is this a case where the science is catching up to what's worked in practice or, mm. or how do you, you know, how do you square this, this circle? Like what, why is this becoming a thing now in the medical community? Do you think? I think it's because when we, when the RDA was established, it was based on nitrogen balance data and it was not necessarily based on physically active individuals and certainly not based on individuals who were physically active and running hypocaloric or, or dieting conditions. And so now we have large swaths of populations uh, who are physically active and also, you know, uh, intermittently running hypocaloric conditions for one reason or another, whether it's preparing for a high school reunion or whether it's preparing for a, a, a contest or, or, um, or for a given sport that's weight class based. And then we have new data on older adults who simply cannot maintain lean body mass on the RDA. And so I think the big stride in our understanding of protein needs from uh, the 1980s versus now, in terms of the, the RDA, whether it's sufficient or not, 
is moving beyond nitrogen balance data in that particular population to actually looking at what happens with lean body mass, which is a proxy for muscle mass. Um, as you directly um, test different protein, daily protein dosages in various populations, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road, not necessarily nitrogen balance, which just gives us a very rough idea of anabolism versus catabolism. But nitrogen balance is not, it does not have this uh, ironclad reliability. For example, um, I'm forgetting who the actual author was. It, it uh, could have been Wahlberg, maybe Mettler as well, um, showing that, well, this actually could have been Wahlberg, but showing that in severely hypocaloric conditions, there was a positive nitrogen balance still maintained while lean body mass was being lost. So that's one of a few examples showing that nitrogen balance isn't necessarily the best proxy for a lean body mass status. And now we've got, we've got more than one meta-analysis looking at protein dosing and lean body mass in a range of populations from younger to older adults. And it's very clear, it's very clear that the RDA is woefully insufficient for not just uh, gaining lean body mass, but but insufficient for maintaining it as well. Yeah, you'd want to use both. The nitrogen balance thing is going to give you like a big overview, particularly as it relates to like organ mass, maybe like uh, protein function uh, as far as like can you generate enough proteins in your blood to maintain <laughs> the osmotic pressure or like, you know, carry your proteins for, for certain um, organic uh, molecules to travel around the bloodstream? Sure. But you also with a greater appreciation, appreciation for how important functioning muscle mass is, we need both, you know. Right. Like, okay. We got nitrogen balance different data. Different puzzle we need pieces. It, 100%. Yeah. You need it in multiple different populations under multiple different conditions. And you also need lean body mass. Uh, uh, like sort of assessments as well. And I think, you know, the latest dietary guidelines came out 20 to 20, uh, so the 2020 to 2025, mm -hmm. uh, but they don't necessarily say, yeah, eat more protein. It's not in there yet. <laughs> so we'll have to wait to 2026, I guess. I don't, I don't know, man. Something. I don't, I honestly, I've given up because <laughs> the RDA for protein has stood for 40 ish years. Yeah. And so I'm like, I don't think they're going to change that. So. Yeah. That's probably my biggest gripe when people are like, what do you, the dietary guidelines are trash. And I'm like, I mean, most people don't follow the dietary guidelines. Yeah. So if we're blaming them for like any particular thing, eh, I, don't, I don't think that's, that's reasonable. You could say that uh, if more people met them, then yeah, we'd have a better argument there. Although I think people would be healthier in general. That's a whole mm -hmm. nother podcast. But <laughs> my biggest gripe is the protein thing. It's like, what are, should we really be limiting people to 0.8? Like for you and I, that's not, I mean, 90 grams of protein a day or whatever it's going to, going to be, or 80 grams. I'm like, man, if I ate 80 grams of protein a day, I, I'd wither away. And right. so, so if I was trying to figure out the most catabolic situation <laughs> yes. from a muscle mass perspective, it would be, yeah, 80 to 90 grams of protein a day, and then don't do any resistance training. And then I would figure out a way to like lose muscle cross-sectional area at the most rapid rate uh, without getting a disease. So that, you know, not right. <laughs> right. And, and how funny is that? We were just talking about uh, resistance training dose. And so, you know, <laughs> if we were to follow the, uh, the guidelines of, of people in, in the, uh, in quotes, the longevity community, we would cut our protein to the RDA. 
And then we do some more reading and then cut our resistance training to 60 minutes a week. And oh, then man. we would uh, just accelerate frailty as quickly as possible. So exactly. Yeah. Although if, you know, if, if the average, if the average resistance training participation was 60 minutes a week, like just across the board, you know, if we had weight, you know, all these people meeting that we'd be in a better place. You we and I would. wouldn't be so happy. We'd be like, dang, I, what do I do with all this extra time? True. <laughs> and where did all my gains go? But like most people do not exercise with weights. They do not resist even the 60 minutes. Right. right. Even half of yeah, any. Point. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe a good goal, but like, obviously there's some benefits, um, to, to doing more. We'll cover that on another podcast. All right. So I think we wrapped up protein calculations. That's good. Definitely going to be in your book. I'm excited for, for people to dig into that. Now this was, I think this is your most like viewed paper that you've ever published so far. This has to do with the anabolic window, like post-workout nutrition timing revisited. Uh, I think that was published uh, almost 10 years ago in the ISSN. Uh, so we're talking about the anabolic window, basically, like after you work out, what do you, how do you define anabolic window? And is that different than when most people are talking about it? Cause I, you know, I think when people hear the term anabolic window, they're like the 30 minutes after you finish your last set, like it may be even like before you left the gym, if you have to clean up a bunch of stuff, but is there in the research you have to define this? What, what's your definition for anabolic window? Okay. So we have to go back to uh, the, the late 1980s where, um, Robert Portman and, and Ivy's research, well, and some of the, some of the even older generation colleagues there, they were looking at what is the best practice for restocking glycogen after you put subjects through a glycogen depleting protocol, like let's say 90 to 120 minutes of continuous work on the quads, um, at moderate to high intensities, uh, and then what is the best protocol for re-synthesizing muscle glycogen at the fastest rate? Do you wait two hours or do you immediately administer a lot of carbohydrate? And of course, the answer was the latter. And so uh, that kind of sparked the idea that, hmm, well, if there's kind of this anabolic window for glycogen resynthesis, maybe there's an anabolic window for maximal anabolic response from a muscle perspective and a muscle protein perspective specifically. So the research in that, in that area marched onward and sure enough, uh, delays in administering protein, um, and or carbohydrate. There, there are different combinations. So there's usually, um, carbohydrate and a small amount of amino acids or a small amount of protein, uh, delays in administering that caused lower muscle protein synthesis responses in, in the, in the post-workout period. And so, uh, this led Portman and Ivy to basically, um, bring forth the anabolic window concept, which was you have a, about 30 to 60 minutes to consume quickly absorbed protein and or amino acids with, um, highly glycemic and, and insulinemic carbohydrate post-exercise because the objective would be to spike your insulin levels and spike your blood amino acid levels simultaneously. So you can take advantage of this anabolic window for recovery and muscle growth. And that was all solid logic and reasoning based on, uh, the data that, that they had at the time in the, in the early two thousands. And that's when they put out their, their book nutrient timing. 
uh, that little paperback book that all of the true <laughs> all of the true aficionados have in their bookshelf somewhere. So yeah, I was like, oh, where is it? It's somewhere here. I know I have it. Yeah, right. Anybody who owns a hard copy of that book, you know, you you know, they're in in the club. So um, <laughs> so what happened um since the I want to say from 2006 onward was a series of studies that challenged this anabolic window concept. Because first of all. The anabolic window was based, the anabolic window concept was based on studies that looked at a period of just a few hours post exercise where you measure, where you measure muscle protein synthesis. Um, and prior to that, where you measure glycogen resynthesis. So, um, that, that's number one. It was based on short term response data. And then when studies came out looking at longer term adaptations in muscle size and strength which takes you know, at least a few weeks to assess rather than just a few hours post-exercise. Uh, this, this hypothesis was be beginning to kind of crumble because it was really hit and miss with um, um, a slight majority of the studies showing no difference in the timing of, of post-exercise nutrient administration on muscle growth and strength. And then we started really kind of doubting the post-exercise anabolic window concept. And so basically what happened was Brad and I got together and wrote a narrative review. So the difference between a narrative review and uh, something like a systematic review or a meta-analysis, a narrative review is almost like an editorial, <laughs> but with an attempt at, at, at being well-supported. Okay. So we're just basically editorializing on the state of affairs of the anabolic window, which seemed so promising at first, but then 10 years later, the longitudinal studies or the non-short-term studies actually looking at effects on muscle hypertrophy, they didn't necessarily support the anabolic window concept. And, and we, um, we hypothesized that, well, this is because in, in studies where you look at long-term changes in, in muscle, you're not focused on a single narrow slice in time of the day. And I, that's kind of where the mistake was because in the course of the day, we're, we're in the fed state for most of the day. And it, within the context of getting enough total protein in the day with, gosh, most people will have at least three meals. Then that really washes out any of the importance or the difference in maneuvering your meals like one hour here or there. And so sure enough, we, we did a meta-analysis of all of the studies that looked at this question. And it turns out that there isn't any difference uh, between studies that time protein within a two-hour window pre or post-exercise versus studies that neglect protein a minimum of two hours um, on either side of the training bout. There, there's no difference in, in muscle size and strength gain. And the main, um, the main factor that was showing advantages of the so-called nutrient-timed or protein-timed conditions was the fact that that protein that was administered within, this, the, you know, within the anabolic window 
it wasn't matched in the control group. It wasn't equated where they ingested protein at some other time point in order to come up with an equal total daily amount of protein in the comparison. And so we're going, oh gosh, most of this research that, that is touting the anabolic window doesn't even match total daily protein. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, so yeah, it turns out that um, the studies that did match protein there, there was no advantage in the uh, timing of the protein. And, and so this, this is what we found with our meta-analysis. So we took it a step further and said, okay, if the anabolic window concept where you're supposed to eat you know, protein and or carbohydrates within 30 to 60 minutes after training, if that really holds true, then it might even work better with um, a pre-exercise administration of, of nutrients because if you look at the anabolic window concept, then you're really looking at nutrient availability in the blood. You're not really necessarily caring about when you ingest the stuff because whenever you ingest a meal, whenever you ingest nutrients on the short end, it's going to take 45 to 60 minutes for, for nutrient levels to peak in the blood, whether it's glucose or amino acids or, or, or insulin even. It's going to take like 45 to 60 minutes for a little quick meal. It's going to take like about two hours for a big slow meal for nutrient levels to peak in the blood. So if we really want to exploit this anabolic window concept, maybe we could administer immediate pre-exercise protein and carbs. And then by the time the workout is over, boom, we're peaking in circulating levels of nutrients and we're taking full advantage of this um, proposed concept of the anabolic, post-exercise anabolic window. So what we ended up doing is, is we compared immediate pre-exercise um, nutrient administration, a, a significant amount of protein that would, that would cause a robust rise in, in muscle protein synthesis, either pre-exercise or post-exercise. And we equated all the variables, protein, all the same total daily protein amount um, and total daily calories, nutrients, everything in both groups. Sure enough, there was no difference in the, uh, in the results, whether you, you consumed it immediate pre or immediate post. And so, um, that was sort of the kind of the, the, the final nail in the coffin of the post-exercise anabolic window concept, as far as, as far as we were concerned, um, so, so yeah, uh, but, but let, let me, uh, qualify that with this, Jordan, if post-exercise, uh, if you have protein immediately post-exercise, um, pro or protein and, or carbohydrates post-exercise, it's rarely ever a bad thing. It's almost never a bad thing. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. You're not recommending fasting just completely no. <laughs> post-workout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, in fact, if somebody is trying to make gains and somebody's trying to expedite adaptations to resistance training, it, it theoretically can, it, it is a good thing. It theoretically is a good thing. And not only that, but it's an opportunity to feed. So if you have limited opportunities to feed the machine and, and push adaptations forward, then neglecting your, your post-exercise meal is, is just a stupid thing. So, Yeah. I think you could expand that to just ignoring eating, <laughs> As, you know, <laughs> yeah. because, because if somebody on a, like a normal dietary pattern, they're going to eat, you know, an hour and a half or so, or two hours before a workout, just in general, because you know, you're eating right before most people are rather uncomfortable. And then by the time you're done training, you get home or whatever, 
it's time to eat again. I mean, it is, it's been three or four hours and, and you're eating. Is it a post-workout meal? Well, technically, by the way, it falls in the day. Sure. But it's not like we're like, okay, you need exacting amounts of amino acids and carbohydrates and these specific types and whatever, plus a pinch of sodium to like drive this transporter. Like you don't got to, you don't need to micromanage it because it just doesn't seem to matter. Um, interestingly, when I, uh, again, we're, we've been developing similar texts and then I think yours ends up being, um, uh, very practical, uh, particularly from a hypertrophy and strength standpoint. And I, I, I went into this like cardiorespiratory fitness, uh, realm. And th- that's where a lot of these carbohydrate glycogen resynthesis, all sorts of stuff, they get really into the weeds there. And I was like, well, what's the data on that? Like, let, let me just, I'm just curious. Um, very similar findings here, unless, and the caveat here is if you have another bout of exercise or a competition in, you know, four hours, three hours, something like that, then yeah, that what you do right after the workout or competition matters because you have a limited time to like get the glycogen stores back up to a level where it probably doesn't impede performance from just an energy substrate standpoint. Um, but otherwise, as far as like total, like long-term trajectory of fitness adaptations, eh, probably, probably doesn't, probably doesn't really matter. Um, and I think the stress about like, am I getting the appropriately timed post-workout meal? That may be more like (laughs) risky, uh, than, you know, uh, than just following a normal dietary pattern. But now that you published this thing back in 2013, it's been almost 10 years. So nine years now, it's gonna be 10 years next year. Has anything changed in that time as far as like, do you just feel more strongly about this or like, are you finding holes in your original argument? Like what's, what's been the change over the last decade or so? Uh, a subtle change, a subtle one, man. Um, and that's for, it, it has become more of a question of optimal protein intake distribution through, through the course of the day. Like what protein pattern or distribution or, or, or just placement and doses, you know, just distribution through the day of your protein intake. What is the optimal distribution for maximizing muscle gain? And so that's kind of what we were beginning to to contemplate 10 years ago with this anabolic window thing. And now instead of looking at this narrow post-exercise timeframe, it's more like, what is the best dosing and timing scheme through the course of the day for protein, protein rich meals to maximize either muscle growth or muscle retention. And so, um, over the last 10 years, there's been a ton of, of, uh, in quotes, intermittent fasting research. And I say in quotes, because there's, there's a bunch of different things that can be classified as intermittent fasting everything from just constraining your feeding window to X hours a day. It's usually eight, eight or, 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 you know, somewhere being five and eight, six to eight hours. So that would be the time restricted feeding. I love to call it time restricted feeding. They're really trying to change it to time restricted eating, but I just love the, the, the kind of the concept of feeding, feeding animals, you know, yeah, just go in there, get a trough. Yeah. Time restricted feeding. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to try to hold on to TRF instead of TRE, like they're trying to do and They're going soft in the literature, man. Right. Right. So, um, (laughs) so time restricted feeding, um, models as well as alternate day fasting models, as well as just, you know, 
whole day fasting models and even consecutive day fasting models. Those are all under the umbrella of IF. And, uh, and it's all, it's most of that um, research is, is under hypocaloric conditions. And they rarely, if ever, show a, a disadvantage to lean mass retention in the IF group compared to the, the conventional daily caloric restriction group. And so that research um, collectively tells us that if the goal is to retain muscle as opposed to the goal of gaining muscle, which seems to be a whole different ball game, for the goal of retaining muscle, the distribution of intake or your pattern or your meal frequency of, of protein-rich meals honestly does not seem to matter. And of course you can take this to an extreme, like with the OMAD bros, the, the one meal a day bros. They're like, yes, OMAD for life. I love it. I love my one binge per day. <laughs> I'm like, okay, just don't time that meal near a date, my friend. Oh my God. Can you imagine? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's not gonna... You would never see, you'd never see your date. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she'd be running out of the room, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Have so, to. um, so yeah, even the OMAD guys, they they have a case for for eating that way to uh, retain, um, maybe not very high levels of muscle, but to retain muscle while dieting. So that's one side of the coin, and then the other side of the coin is guys whose main goal is to gain muscle. Not only is it kind of uh, impractical to to try to do that in a single meal or even two meals a day, but it doesn't at least theoretically maximize muscle protein synthesis, the cumulative muscle protein synthesis through the course of the day, through the course of the week and the month and so on. And so at least from a hypothetical perspective, um, and this is the main difference between uh, the, the 2013 paper and what, what we know now is like, we the guys whose main goal is to gain muscle might need to nail a an, an optimal frequency through the day of protein feedings that may need to begin first thing and may need to end pre-sleep if you really want to be obsessive with this whole thing. Now, mid-sleep protein dosing where you just go crazy and you have a 2 2 a.m. alarm with a protein shake next to the bed, I do know a couple guys who've done that. Um it's not worth the trade-off in terms of sleep disturbance. But if you could have an IV drip that just shoots you some protein at 2.45 a.m., hey. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know? Why do you guys think I went to medical school? Okay. I got <laughs> – it's not a slow drip. It's a bolus. I've got a large bore IV and I just push that thing about you know, midnight. So I keep my gains. That's what, that's right, what I've been right. doing. It's just got to be casein, right? So yeah, that's funny. <laughs> so so yeah, that that's kind of the the latest in, in our thinking is what you want to do is you want to you want each meal to maximize or at least hit the theoretical ceiling for muscle protein synthesis. Mm -hmm. And there, of course, there's debate amongst academics of like what is this dose that maximizes muscle protein synthesis? And you have guys on the conservative side saying. Oh, it's a 20 to 30. Yeah, that's it. And then you have guys on the liberal side saying, oh, it's more like 50 to 60, you know? 
So um, that, that is a debate that's going on right now. It, it depends on the population and it depends on the circumstances. Uh, are you in a train state? Are you post-exercise after like four sets of leg extensions or are you post-exercise after like 16 sets of like a, like a full body situation, 20 sets? So that definitely influences, uh, are you a young guy who's, you know, highly uh, receptive to protein feedings? Or are you an old guy who needs to be basically carpet bombed with a whole hell of a lot of protein to match the muscle protein synthesis response of the, of a younger guy. So those things all come into play. So, um, uh, Brad and I, we took a, a, a pragmatic approach to this question and said, since the evidence is solid enough to, uh, to indicate that what maximizes muscle growth in terms of total daily protein intake is 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. Um, we would need to have the dosing be like within that, those limits, we would need to have the, the, the doses add up to something within those limits and within the literature, the outlying high doses that still maximize muscle protein synthesis is right around 0.4 to, in some outliers, 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight per meal yeah. per meal. Yeah. Yeah. And so we took that, that, those, those high, that high end of 0.4 to 0.6 and said, cool. So that theoretically maximizes muscle, the, the, the short-term anabolic response. So short-term MPS, that's what maxes it out. Any more than that, highly unlikely to, to, to cause further muscle protein synthesis. So how many times a day would you need to take that in, in order to equal a grand total of 1.6 to 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. And the simple, simple math there is four times in the day yep. of yep. 0.4 to 0.55. You know, I hate, I hate saying that it really, <laughs> right. Well, well, well. <laughs> so I just say 0.6. So, so yeah, um, a protein dose of 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight consumed at least four times a day, uh, over spread over the course of the day. So you, you're not necessarily going to want to skew that within like a four hour period or even an eight hour period. It's, it's, uh, more hypothetically anabolic, if you start the day with that and end the day with, with, with a dose as well, then that's kind of, you're doing all that we know as of today to, to maximize the, uh, the muscle growth response. Yeah. It is kind of interesting because it, we're, we're relying on mechanistic data, you know, as far as like, okay, this would maximize muscle protein synthesis response. Here's how often we can do it. And so we think we expect there to, that there would be a difference at a year, two years, three, you know, whatever long-term outcomes in muscle mass and, you know, potentially muscle strength, but that's a whole nother conversation that we have to get Jeremy Linicky on the podcast to discuss. Um, but, but we don't know. And, and I think it's a good, it's a, it's a good hedge. And so I think it's a reasonable take. Um, it's just interesting. Like some of the other mechanistic data that we've seen so far and unpacked here has not really panned out. Like you got to maximize muscle protein synthesis post-workout. That's the time. And it's like, eh, maybe, maybe not as long as we're doing it otherwise. And so I'll be, you know, we'll see, we'll see who, you know, how these studies pan out. And, uh, because you guys are good scientists and good researchers, uh, you'll update your position as new evidence emerges. But I think it's a reasonable take. You're taking one leap here. You're like, the mechanisms are such, we feel pretty confident in those. 
and we're taking one leap for you know for practical application purposes and we're not overly confident that this is like you know it's not written in stone but you know we and, got the stones ready <laughs> i i, I want to make it clear that it it is a leap absolutely and i'm glad you pointed that out because if enough research comes down the pike where they're testing two protein two to three protein meals a day yeah, right okay and they directly compare that with let's say somewhere between four and six meals a day and it doesn't make a, a gall darn difference in highly trained subjects you know under these sort of idealized uh progressive resistance training conditions that that are um where we're you know even even forcing a hypocaloric factor in there to, to really try to maximize muscle growth and there's no difference then yeah yeah hey man even better even better yeah. we, we, our, our hypothesis failed and so maybe we we don't have to nitpick at the, yeah. you know, the minimum of four dosed at 0. 0.4 to 0.6. Maybe it's, it, it's truly a matter of just hit it by the end of the day, but that research is, has not been done. And I don't know if it'll ever get done. Yeah. It'd be a pretty expensive, uh, proposition. Okay. You're going to follow this representative sample for a long period of time under somewhat controlled settings and, you know, yeah. So we'll, we'll see, but yeah, I, I again, I think that's the difference between making a mech, having a mechanism in place and then making multiple leaps mm -hmm. and having a mechanism and making one leap. You, you start to feel a little more confident, but again, and, and Alan's very rep, you know, representative of how to do good science in the space that if it doesn't, you know, if your hypothesis gets rejected, that's fine. Just move update update rather than like, well, I got this book out. I got, I really got to stand my ground here. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm totally okay with, um, with retracting and saying, oh yeah, well, I was wrong on that. I mean, that's been done a few times. I, um, but for the time being, I, I, the evidence points to 30 ish to 50 ish grams a day per of protein per meal. If you can get that in at least three times in the day, then you're you're beginning to to hedge your bets towards um, maximizing anabolism. And if you can get it to four times a day, then hey, maybe even better. But the the hierarchy of importance, and I don't think this will change with research, is total daily amount of protein would be at the the top level, top of the hierarchy, and then the timing and distribution of the constituent doses would be uh, a, a distant secondary concern. Yeah. I like that. Put a bow on that. All right. This is the wild card question. This is our final, our last question. Um, and I like this is my favorite, but it is a wild card. So you're prepared. I don't know how much arguing you do on the internet these days because you've been around for so long. I assume it's very little, but you know, somebody could say something that triggers you in which case you get lost in the sauce and then you're in the comments and re updating your phone every few seconds. Cause you really, Oh, gotta do this. So the fitness industry is, is ripe with misinformation and in some cases disinformation more often misinformation. Cause I actually don't believe that people have this nefarious intent. If they're in the fitness industry, most people are trying to help others. I get that. Do influencers get a pass for misinformation if they're trying to help or, or maybe even frame differently? Do they get a pass for misinformation if it's actually indirectly helping folks? You know, they're saying, don't eat carbs. Carbs are bad, which is clearly 
misinformation. Okay. But somebody will take that and then they'll change their dietary pattern and lose weight and improve their health trajectory. And you're like, mm, well, maybe that's fine, I guess. Uh, cause the people that are seeking out that information are maybe likely to respond to it. I don't know. What's your take on that? Do people get a pass for misinformation if it, if it helps others or if they're trying to help? Like I did my best. I don't know, what do you think on that? That is such a great question, Jordan. And I think it's, I think it's case by case. I think it's case by, by case. And I think you can, uh, grade the egregiousness of the misinformation based on what is the potential for, for harm of, of, of harming health. Yeah. What you know, are the stakes? Har- sure. Yeah. Yeah. And like harming people's finances. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> that's going to happen. <laughs> but, right. but harming their health. Um, I think we can, we can grade it based on that. And so bigger picture, I I really think that for a lot of people putting out what, what you and I see as misinformation and what actually could be objectively misinformation, some of it's going to be good. And some of it is going to have a net positive effect. Um, I, uh, gosh, you know, the, the carnivore diet is such an easy example to, to provide because mm-hmm. it has a net benefit on a lot of people, especially sure. if, if their previous habits were, oh my gosh, you know, the, the standard Western diet, but the wor- the, the, ba- the bad version of the standard Western diet. Right. Which is not the nutritional guidelines, people, just FYI. <laughs> the standard American diet, standard Western diet is not what the nutritional guidelines espouse. Just to, right. It's just, right. it's just not, but yeah. That's okay. one of the big misconceptions out there is, oh, the guidelines killed us. No, we didn't follow. We never followed the yeah, guidelines. Yeah, we didn't follow them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but let's see. So, Okay. So I'm not saying the carnivore diet gets a pass, okay. but I can see how it benefits a lot of yeah. people, at least for a certain amount of time. Sure. Um, now, on the other end of the spectrum, if you put out – guidelines that uh the rda for protein is all we need because if you eat more than the rda then you you're you're shortening your lifespan <laughs> yeah yeah the longevity like, peeps longevity bros yeah oh man okay yeah that i don't give that a pass because i'm aware of the research i'm aware of the data on protein dosing and its influence on age-related muscle loss and it is just so solid and so strong. And for anybody to recommend protein restriction for longevity is totally missing the plot. They're totally missing the, the kind of the thought pathway here. Their, their thought pathway is, okay, you restrict protein and then you, you lower IGF-1 and mTOR and therefore you, you increase longevity. Okay. Number one, that's seen in, in rodents, flies, and, and worms. Uh, <laughs> and number two, it's difficult to disentangle that from caloric restriction in general, um, bring people from a state of overfeeding to at least not overfeeding. Yeah, right. And, and then, um, and number three, the better thought pathway is support lean body mass optimally. So you can best, so your body can best process metabolic fuels and be optimally functional. And so your body can best support a lifestyle that sustains leanness and muscularity. 
and physical activity. That thought pathway leads to maximal lifespan and health span. Whereas the other one, restrict your protein, restrict your calories. Rest- yeah, it's like, um, yeah, yeah, no, you're missing the plot. Yeah, that may, I don't think it actually improves lifespan. It maybe, or maybe doesn't affect it that much, but health span definitely drops that and expands morbidity rather than compresses it, uh, yeah. which would be egregious, especially because it's, it's, it just sets people up for failure. That takes long time to correct it, like a long term, long time to manifest and then also correct. It's like, oh, you can't just turn it off. You're like, damn, I've been doing this for years. Yes. And now I have no muscle mass. And you're like, well, yeah, it turns out that was, that was an error. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's, that's my thing against the carnivore diet. It's like, well, if you eat this in a particular manner and you have a high amount of saturated fat, low amounts of dietary fiber, uh, I don't know how that sets you up, uh, from a lipid standpoint at, well, I do know based on the existing evidence and that's probably not great. And again, that's going to take a while to manifest. And mm-hmm. then at that point it's like, well, kind of, kind of, kind of dug your own grave here, but yeah, right. I, I, right. I think people, yeah, in general are trying to help. And the misinformation thing is, is. Yeah, it's just sticky because you're like, well, I'm not here to, you know, regulate the internet or, 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 you know, go in and correct everybody. I don't think that'd be a very effective manner of changing anybody's minds. Anyway, it's just, it's more annoying than anything else. Uh, so I'm curious and I, I am putting you on the spot. Is, is the longevity thing, is that the most harmful stuff that you've, you've seen recently, like on the internet or has there been more, I mean, for, in the health and fitness field, like, look, we could, ex- if we expand this, you got anti-vax stuff. Like we don't need to get into that. People will. T- light us up in the comments, you know, wherever they, they stand on that. But I'm, I'm curious, what's the most harmful thing you've seen in the fitness space, uh, as of late? Oh, it's, it's a toss up really between some of the longevity and protein restriction recommendations. Um, some of the, uh, uh, time restricted feeding information is, it's just more annoying than anything where, where people are saying that, well, not only do you have to, to constrain your, your feeding window, but you have to do it in, in an early shifted manner where you're basically skipping dinner. It's like, right. oh, okay, well, that's realistic for, for life. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, uh, yeah, I think we're missing the forest for the trees there as well. But yeah, that's more of an, an annoying thing. Um, some of the things that were really kind of setting me off are kind of come and gone, like bulletproof coffee. We're not, uh, not only are you, are you putting butter in your coffee, but you're, stacking MCT oil on top of that. And, and, and you're, you're spouting off all of these falsehoods, justifying this practice that essentially is just, you know, just getting people to eat less because they're, they're, um, <laughs> you know, so maybe, maybe. Yeah. yeah but you yeah, start and some out, people you- don't eat less. Some people do, some people have their coffee thing and they run it all the way to dinner. Okay, great. Well, you, you've eaten less in, in total, but other people will just add butter to their coffee thinking that that's the, thing that that's the health hack maybe yeah and uh, so but but that's kind of come and gone so yeah man interesting questions really and uh and it gives somebody like myself stuff to write about so um mm-hmm. i'm not too mad at, at the information at least it gives me something to 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 attempt to provide a counterpoint to and, and discuss so so yeah i guess we need it <laughs> yeah, right yeah otherwise what do we say so you, again, you've been in the space for forever and a day, not to date you, but forever yeah, and a day. It's all right. It's all right. I, 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 I don't identify with someone who ages. So, <laughs> Right. Elder millennial. Um, 
if I if I if I was somebody who's a newer coach in the space or trying to get into it, and I'm I hear all this stuff, and I'm like, man, I really I I want that guy's knowledge, or I want to be exposed to that stuff so I can learn. What's your recommendation for for a trainer or coach? Like, where should they go? If you had to give somebody one piece of advice, I know again another on the spot kind of question. Mm-hmm. What, what what would you tell them to like sort of? make them feel more comfortable operating in the space as a subject matter expert? Well, pick the specialization, number one. Sure. It's, it's hard to be a jack of all trades, although, you know, you have all day to read everything you want to read, but to figure out what you're most interested in and where you want to do most of your waiting around in and where you want to have most of your effectiveness in. And so pick a specialization. And then what people can do, is start with the position stands of the major organization mm-hmm. of the topic in question. Start with the position stands because usually they represent um, several decades of what we what we think we know. And the cool thing about position stands is that they usually include a practical uh, component, usually more so than than your typical meta analysis that'll tell you that you know this congregation of effect sizes says. Oh well, this doesn't work. <laughs> or right, well, yeah. oh, oh well, this this is it, or this is not it. And then you're left with, okay, so what do I do with this? You know, like what what do I do with, with this result? Um, position stands will kind of give you the the practical implications, which is kind of a cool thing because they're a combination of the the evidence plus okay, there's there's a theory. Now here's the practice. So I would I would point people first to position stands, and from that point. Um, it is kind of who you know, um, who's putting out the good information. Uh, my research review is certainly one I would recommend, and there are others in the space with research reviews who are basically all my, my colleagues, former colleagues and friends, and uh, they all do good work as well. So um, start with the position stands and then sub to my research review. <laughs> yeah, right. No, no I, I do love that, though, and especially because you're going to see on the you know, on the, on the consensus statements, the position stands, and even in medicine, the clinical practice guidelines, you're going to see the same names over and over again, that are like they're being cited or they're authors or whatever. And you start to get a sense of like, all right, here are the experts in the field. Perhaps I can read some of this underlying research or some of the materials that they've put out elsewhere and start to get a better appreciation of like, well, why are the, why are the position stands the way they are? Why are the clinical practice guidelines the way they are rather than starting with like a book, like, I, you <laughs> know, any one of the popular diet. Yeah, exactly. And then being like, well, now I'm a paleo coach. And it's like, what the, f- what, what, how did, how, why, don't start there. Start with, you know, the, uh, ISSN's, you know, guidelines on body recomposition or on, uh, nutrition got, uh, recommendations for performance, you know, whatever there's, there's sure. plenty out there. So yeah, sure. I think that's great. I think the that's great. scientific now, consensus is not perfect, but it's nope. not a bad place to start. Yeah, that's where I, exactly. Yeah, that's a great place to start for building your fund of knowledge, rather than a randomized controlled trial or a popular book. You know, a book, um, unless that book's a textbook. But I don't know if you don't have a formal training in this. I don't know that the textbook is accessible at this point. So it bugs me when people say. You need to just start reading the textbooks. It's like, really? Yeah. Yeah. Just read, just read the literature. It's like, well, what if I don't have a scientific background? Then what? Anyway. Yeah. 
All right. So people can find you. Uh, yeah. Tell everyone where they can find you. Where can they interact yeah. with you? Give us, give us your pitch. Sure. Sure. AlanAragon.com is where you can find all my stuff from my research review to my books. So, uh, and you can also find me on Instagram. Uh, they, my Instagram handle is the Alan Aragon because somebody took Alan Aragon and, <laughs> what? <laughs> and you can also um, find me on Twitter. Same thing. The Alan Aragon Twitter is generally a toxic place. So I, I just try to minimize my interactions there. Keep them nice and short, make announcements, maybe drop a couple <laughs> cheeky comments here and there. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm on social media. It's easy to find me, easy to reach me, uh, easy to, easy to interact. So, so yeah, but it's mainly alanaragon.com where all my stuff is at. Perfect. We'll link all that in the description below along, along with the direct link to get Alan's book. Uh, Alan, thank you so much for joining us here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Jordan, you are a true gentleman and a true scholar. So nice. I, I, I've said that before, but I don't always mean it. But with you, I 100%, 200% mean it. I'm going to hold you to that. That's perfect. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap on episode 179. Again, big shout out to Alan Aragon for coming on the podcast. Everything we talked about is linked in the description below. Really appreciate you listening this week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you the latest nuance in health and fitness. See you guys next time. 